You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. I've pretty recently become a fan of Duck Dynasty. And uh, if you've never watched Duck Dynasty, I appreciate you coming out from under your rock to come to church tonight. But let me uh, explain a little bit in case you've never seen it, because I was a pretty late fan to it. And you have Phil Robertson, who's the head of the family, so to speak. He's the, the dad. And they are Christians. And I read a quote he said in one of the sermons Phil Robertson was preaching that I want to open up with tonight. He said this in a sermon. I'm waiting on some news organization at some point, some university, some movie that will just acknowledge sin. I'm like, ABC, the news reporter sat across from me the other day, quizzing me about, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, let me ask you something. You've been with ABC quite a while, right? And he said, yes. I said, has ABC or any other news organization, to your knowledge, have you ever heard anyone say anything about sin? And he was like, uh... I said, come on out with it. Have you ever, yourself, mentioned sin once in your entire career? He said, I don't think I have, Mr. Robertson. I said, have you looked around at the murder, the rape, the robbery, the mayhem, the burning, the looting, these outright theft, bank robberies? I'm looking around. I said, well, you've been in the news business reporting the news. There's a shooting down there. I said, well, that was sin. Some guy went down there and started shooting. Somebody drove by and shot eight people. Somebody burned somebody out. Somebody kidnapped our children. I said, why wouldn't you ever mention sin? And even though we will call it something different, Christians versus non-Christians, Christians will call it sin, this is one thing everybody can agree on, that there's something very wrong with this world, and we have that innate feeling that something needs to put it right. Hey, whereas Christians will call this sin, other people, groups of people will call, have different words for this. And there's also different ways people deal with this problem, that this world is evil and it's, it's off in some way. So some people will be nominally religious. Hey, they'll say things like, I'm pretty good, God is pleased with me, I'm a decent, moral, religious person, and base it on what they do outwardly. Some people will be religious for a cause, we'll say. They're not religious in the sense they worship a God, but in the sense that they say, you know, this, this world is in trouble. There's, this world is bad, and I'm good, and I'm going to make a difference. So I'm going to put bumper stickers on my car and go door to door and say, well, you sign this petition. Some people try to deal with the problem of sin like that. Sometimes people will lie about it and say, I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. But, you know, everybody feels like that. So if everybody's kind of a good person, this world wouldn't be so bad. Some people will be spiritual, and they'll redefine sin and repentance and make up a God that will serve them instead of them serving a God to try to deal with this problem. Or some people will just ignore it. They'll say, that's who we are, that's human nature, and whatever. That's just how this world is. And whatever way people deal with this problem, 
The problem is clear is that everyone is sinful, whatever you want to call it. Well, everyone is sinful, and that's a foundation of Christianity, a key problem of the human nature. And the problem with sin, it's, it's not you, it's me. Hey, the problem is not them, it's me. And the problem is not out there, the problem is in here. And because we're sinful in thought, we're sinful in word, and we're sinful in deed, Jesus is the only one who can solve our sin problem. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in Romans, the, the big idea that we're sinful in thought and word and in deed. And what has happened so far in the book of Romans, it's been like two and a half chapters of Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, this group of people sinful, this group of people sinful, this group of people sinful, and putting everyone under condemnation to say, everybody is sinful. And uh, if you've been here, tonight is the last one. This is his conclusion on that. So the first half, or the second half of chapter one, Paul is pointing out the outward sins people commit, like sexual immorality, hatred, uncleanness. And then he moved on in chapter two, the first part of that, to talking about self-righteous sin, thinking we're better than people who do those things. And then in the second half of chapter two, he moves on to hypocritical sin, doing what we don't, or saying what we don't practice. And then last week at the beginning of chapter three, he dealt with the problems people might have about that because people don't like being told they're sinful. And now tonight, today what we'll read in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is his conclusion on this idea of condemnation, that everybody is sinful. There's not one person who can say that they are not. And so this is his conclusion to this, uh, this condemnation section. And what he does, Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, masterfully weaves a bunch of Old Testament scriptures together to finalize his argument, to make his conclusion that everybody is under condemnation and everybody is guilty because everybody is sinful in thought and in word and in deed. So first of all, that people are sinful in thought. And so we're in, again, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And we'll read uh, verses 9 through 12 to see how people are sinful in thought. Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. And so we're sinful in thought. And what Paul is writing about here is not sinful in thought in the sense Maybe sometimes we fantasize in our minds and are tempted and then give in to that. You can give in to temptation in your mind. Now, as a side note, being tempted is not a sin, but indulging in it in your mind is sinful. That's not quite what Paul is talking about here, although that is an aspect of being sinful in thought. What Paul is talking about is that our entire thought process, our life course, and our belief systems are completely misguided and sinful and misdirected. And so it's the whole pattern of our mind that he's talking about here. And this concept is very important that our mind is entirely sin- sinful because sin doesn't start with breaking a set of rules. Sin starts with the breaking of your relationship with God. And so sin, isn't starting, sin doesn't start by breaking rules. It starts by breaking your relationship with God in your mind. And when that relationship is broken, then it's pretty easy to break a set of rules. And so it starts in the mind. 
And this explains why you can't just try harder. You can't just do better. You can't just be a better person. What you need is a completely new mind because what you do outwardly doesn't fix this sinful, misdirected mind that we have. And this is what Paul writes about in Romans 12.2 where it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so in these verses, Paul again is showing how our entire thinking process is misdirected and sinful. And he does that. This is actually a bunch of Old Testament uh, scriptures that Paul is using almost like a source to back up his argument that the just shall live by faith, not by works, because we have no works to stand on. And so there's several here. So the first thing he quotes is from Psalm 14. And that's where it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. You know, it's important to understand when the Bible talks about being righteous, it's not talking about being a good person. It's not talking about moral character. It's talking about right legal standing with God. And we'll talk about this more next week, but it's a legal standing. It's a, almost an outward thing rather than an inward thing. So when the Bible says there's none righteous, it's not saying that there's no one who does anything good ever. It's saying there's no one in good legal standing with God. And this is one way that our thinking about God is misdirected. That we think being righteous means being good. But we're not good. And calling yourself righteous because you do good things is self-righteous. So the righteousness here that says there's no one righteous means there is no one in good legal standing with God. And that's because of our sinful mindset, misdirected thought processes. Uh, Next thing he quotes is from Psalm 53. And it says, there is none who understands. And when I, when I read that, I think of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul also writes, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And what this is talking about, that uh, there is none who understands, is that apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God the Holy Spirit living inside of you, there is no one who understands God. We want to understand things about him. But as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, uh, you don't know somebody's thoughts unless you know their spirit. And what, what he says is we can't understand what God thinks unless we have his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, you might understand some things, but you're, you're going to miss things. That's what I did before I was a Christian. I thought I understood Christianity and what it's all about, but I was completely off because of my sinful and misguided thinking processes, because I could not understand God's thoughts without God's Spirit. And, and that's what it means. And so how this manifests itself is people think that you do certain things for God so that He'll bless you. And we see this a lot of times in a lot of religions and belief systems. You know, if you pray this many times a day, God has to bless you. If you follow these rules, God has to bless you. And it's almost a manipulation thing that by performing in a certain way, you're forcing God to bless you. And that's misguided. So other religions, other philosophies will say, if I do this, then God will do that. But Christianity, and that's what the natural mind thinks, Christianity says, because God has already done this, I can do that. It's a complete inversion of any other belief system. 
that it's not us trying to manipulate God into doing things. It's God has already done the work for us through sending His Son Jesus to live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death. He's already done that so that we can do good things. We're already pleasing to God. We don't manipulate Him into blessing us or liking us. He's already done it. And so that's, there's none who understands because that's our natural thinking process is we have to do this and then God will bless us. But that's not how it is. Next, uh, Paul quotes from Ecclesiastes 7.20 and says, there is none who seeks after God. And notice, it doesn't say that there's none who do good. It doesn't say there's none who seek blessing from God. It doesn't say that there's none who seek answers from God. It doesn't say there's none who seek spiritual truth from God. People seek all those things. But what Paul is saying, quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes, is no one seeks after God himself. In our natural thinking process, in our natural misguided sinful thinking process, we seek things from God. We don't seek God himself. Uh, So let let me try to explain this with an illustration. In a hypothetical situation, let's say that there is a husband who is an alcoholic. It could be either one. I mean, this is hypothetical. So the, the husband is an alcoholic, and the wife says things to him like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to support you. You know, I'm going to be strong for us. I have to do this for us because you're destroying our relationship and our marriage, and I have to be the rescuer here. And then a lot of times what happens, and there's you know, research to support this, after, you know, say someone goes through AA, and they become sober and give up their alcoholism, sometimes what happens is then uh, the husband will get better in this situation, then the marriage will fall apart. And because psychologically in misguided sinful thinking, what the wife was doing was all outwardly good things, but her motivations were to rescue him, and when he didn't need rescuing anymore, then there was no purpose for her to serve there anymore. And she doesn't have a purpose in the relationship and it's, it's kind of like that. When we seek things from God, we might even do good things to seek things from God. But our motivations are uh, self-righteous and selfish and prideful. And the same like in that kind of situation. That's what seeking things from God is. Again, even though that can lead to, or that, that causes outwardly good things, but what's our motivation for seeking things from God? It's generally selfish and prideful in our misguided and misdirected thinking processes. And that's why nobody, as it says here, seeks after God. It's because we're doing good things before our own selfish purposes. And, you know, good is good. Book is book. Good is good. Adrian knows what I'm talking about. Uh, Good is good, but uh, there's nothing wrong with doing good, but it's the heart that God is concerned with, not with the doing good, not doing good things, to seek things from God, but seeking after God Himself is something the Holy Spirit has to work in you before you'll do that. Because again, it's our misdirected thinking processes won't allow us to do that. We'll seek blessings from God or we'll seek things from Him and we think it's in exchange for things. But that's not how Christianity is. And then, next, uh, Paul quotes from Psalm 14 by saying, they have all turned aside. And he's saying, this one pretty straightforward, that we've all turned from God's way, and all means all, me and you and everybody, we've all turned from God's way because our thinking process, again, is misdirected and sinful. 
Next is a quote from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, where Paul says, they have together become unprofitable. And so because of our sin, sinfulness and our thought, we're of no use to God. We're unprofitable. And, and this is important to understand. This is why Christianity is different than anything else. Because it's not that God needs us. It's that we need Him. We're of no profit to God. He didn't have to do anything that He's done. He did not have to send His Son on a rescue mission to save sinners. But He did it. And He did that because we are of no use for Him. And He wanted out of His love to be reconnected with us. And that's a huge difference than any, any other thing. Hey, we're unprofitable to God, like it says here, but God still loves us, even though we're of no use to Him, but He's of use to us, clearly. Uh, last thing he says about being sinful in thought is also a quote from Psalm 14 and 53. There is none who does good, no, not one. And like I mentioned earlier, our sinful thinking process tells us that doing good is good, and it is, and we do good things, but they, those good things don't have value to God unless they're built on the foundation of Jesus. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in Corinthians. Paul explains this picture of building something on a foundation. And if that foundation is Jesus, then you're going to be able to build on it. If it's not, it doesn't mean anything to God. And that's why it says there's none who does good, no, not one. Because without the foundation of Jesus, none of our good things mean anything because they are self-righteous and prideful and self-serving. And Paul, the human author of this, uh, in Philippians spelled this out pretty good. I mean, he, if you have an outwardly righteous resume, Paul is better than you. And Paul, he says that in Philippians 3, Paul gives his resume of outward, self-righteous, religious deeds that he used to take pride in, in his sinful thinking. He said this, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. So he's saying, if any of you think that you have done better, self-righteously, religiously, outwardly, I've done better than you. He says, he, and then he continues, circumcised on the eighth day, because that's what God commanded, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So, ancestrally, Paul was one of God's people. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, which is where the first king of Israel came from. So that was an honored tribe. And he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's one of God's people by lineage. And he says, concerning the law of Pharisee. So about the things God's commanded us to do, he says he's a Pharisee. That means he knows the Bible better than you. He's studied it more than you. He's followed it more perfectly than you. He's done those things. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. A zeal is, we might say today, like being on fire for Christ. And that's zeal. And he says, about that, I persecuted the church because he thought we were God's enemy. The church was God's enemies. We, we always want to remember when we're reading something from Paul that he is a murderer. He murdered Christians, or at least was implicit in it. And so if you think you're on fire for God, Paul thought he was way more. He even murdered God's enemies, so to speak. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he's followed all of God's rules. He's been righteous. He's done all the outward things. And so his resume is more impressive than yours if we're looking at outward things. But, this is what he says after that. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. 
Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellent of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Hey, all that stuff Paul did outwardly, even serving God as he thought, he says, none of those things mean anything because what matters is Jesus. Outward things don't matter because our mind is sinful and misguided. And I like, he says he counts them as rubbish. Our translations kind of ease up on that word in the original Greek. Sometimes they call it fail, sometimes dung. As far as I've read, the closest word to that is mildly bad word, crap. It was kind of almost an offensive word in the Greek. And he says that's what he considers all of the outwardly self-righteous religious things he did before he knew Jesus, even though he was following the rules of the God in this Bible in the Old Testament. He says none of those things mean anything because now he knows Jesus. And uh, it's kind of like, well, who is a dog or a cat? I guess cats, any, or any sort of animal can do this. By calling it crap or rubbish or dung, when we can think what he's saying is our self-righteous outward deeds is a little bit, well, no, a little bit like uh, looking at what your dog has done in your yard and being like, oh man, that's a nice big pile. And taking pride in that. And that's what he says it's like. And that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. So again, he's saying we are sinful in thought. Our entire thinking process is misguided and sinful. We're sinful in thought. But next he continues and says how we're sinful in word in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So we're sinful in our words. And Jesus says this. This was a, an important verse for me. I always think about this. Jesus says about our words, they're from the overflow of our heart. What our heart is filled with is what comes out of our mouth. And that, that's deep. And when our mind is filled with the stuff we just talked about, that's going to come out of our mouths. So it starts in the mind, but that's going to, or in the heart we could say, that's going to come out in words at some point. That's what Jesus says about our mouths. And the book of James is probably the best New Testament place for learning about the power of our words and our tongues. And James compares the tongue to the rudder on a ship. It's a small thing that directs the course of the whole ship. Now, I get this privilege that I can say that I'm a Titanic hipster because I liked Titanic before it was cool, before the movie came out. I remember being in like third grade and watching an educational film on Titanic before the movie. And I was like, oh, I like Titanic. I, I enjoyed it. I, I started to geek out about it. And then the movie came out. And I, pretended, I said I didn't like it because I was in like sixth grade. And ew, yucky, love story. But I love that movie right now. And so the, the Titanic is what I think of when Paul talks about our tongue is like the rudder on a ship. Because when it was built, the Titanic was the biggest moving object on the earth and it's still one of the top ones and here's here's how big it's it was almost 900 feet long a football field is 300 feet so it's almost 900 feet long or if you think the uh, prime bridge over the gorge that's about 500 feet over the gorge so if you put the titanic on the snake river the bridge would be like halfway up it that's how long it was it was 100 feet tall 
And uh, this building in the fellowship hall is not 100 feet, so it's taller than that. 100 feet is like 10 stories. And its weight was over 50,000 tons. And a uh, locomotive on a train is only 100 tons. So this is a massive, massive ship. And what people, one of the people say why the Titanic sank was because the rudder was too small. But that's not true. They've researched this scientifically, and, and they've, the rudder was not too small to guide the Titanic. And the rudder at its biggest was like 15 feet wide. So a ship bigger than this church, the rudder would fit in this room. And that rudder was big enough to move the whole ship. And Paul says that, or James, the apostle, says, that's our tongue. It's a small thing that can direct the course of your whole life. And what we say is very sinful, sinful in word, because our thoughts are sinful, and we speak out of the abundance of that. James also goes on to say in the book of James that with our mouth we both praise God and curse people. And these things ought not to be true. Because, another illustration, he says you cannot get good water out of a bitter well. It says elsewhere in the Bible, you cannot get good fruit from a bad tree. If what comes out of your mouth is bitter, he's saying you can't have both things coming out of your mouth. So what I'm saying here is, yes, we've all said bad things. We've all used our tongues to hurt people, to curse people, rather than to praise God. And the, the point is we can't take the I'm a good person defense because you cannot get good water from a bitter well. You cannot get good fruit from a bad tree. So none of us can say we're a good person like a people a lot of times say in our culture. And that's been Paul's point in this beginning part of Romans is we can't say we're good people. We can't say we can be just before God on our own rights because just the fact that you've said things that hurt people says we're not good people. And so again, Paul weaves together some quotes from the Old Testament to back up his point about this. First, from Psalm 5, he says, their throat is an open tomb. And an open tomb was unclean. It was again, one of God's laws was that dead things were unclean. And if you touched something that was dead, you would be unclean. And you'd have to go through a purification process. You'd have to take yourself outside the, the camp or the town. And so he says that's what our throat is. It's unclean. And it makes other things unclean too because an open tomb is easy to walk into. And that's our throat. It's filled with uncleanness and it spreads uncleanness. Also from Psalm 5, it says, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. And we don't even have to talk about this. It's so obvious. We've all lied. Probably all lied tonight, really. How are you doing? Good. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe. Maybe you are. And you know, so we've all practiced deceit. Uh, from Psalm 140, Paul quote, quotes, The poison of asps is under their lips. Got to be careful of that word. Is under their lips. So our lips hurt people. Our words hurt people. It's like the poison of a snake. What comes out of our mouth hurts people. And from Psalm 10, Paul uh, quotes, Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So our mouths are used to curse people. Our mouths are used to gossip about people, slander people, make fun of people, belittle people, demean people, say mean things about people, bully people. Our mouths do all those things. And you do not get good water from a bitter well. So just from that alone, without even our thought processes, without even the things we've actually done, just the things we've said should condemn everybody 
And we need to get rid of this notion that we're good people underneath it all. Because we're not. That's what the Bible teaches. Thirdly, we're sinful in thought and word and then in deed. And this is in verses 15 through 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, I mean, these all work together. Because our minds are sinful and misdirected, we speak out of the abundance of that, and then we do things out of the abundance of that. So this is the evil we actually do in the world. And again, it's easy to say, yeah, if if people would know Jesus, this world would be a lot better. And it would, but we know Jesus, and there's still a lot of evil we cause. It's It's a human problem that won't be taken away until we're in our glorified bodies at Jesus' return. And so this is, again, about all of us, we're all the problem with the evil in this world. And again, some more Old Testament quotes. This one is from Proverbs 116 and Isaiah 59.7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We are quick to do violence, sinful indeed. So this is violence, murder, hatred, abuse, rape, betrayal. We're quick to do those things. And again, if people were good people, and most people say they're a good person, there wouldn't be so much of that in our world. Hey, we're quick to do those things. Our feet are swift to shed blood. And then from Isaiah 59.7, Paul quotes, Destruction and misery are in their ways. And no wonder our world is so miserable and there's so much evil. Then this is who we are. And even with Jesus, we, I mean, He works on us and gets the Holy Spirit into us, but we're all part of this problem. And our ways are destruction and misery. So yeah, there's good in the world, but that's why there's destruction and misery in this world. Uh, next is a quote from Isaiah 59.8, And the way of peace they have not known. And this is why this world is never going to know peace until Jesus returns. And he says even uh, wars will increase until he returns, until Jesus comes back, because we don't know the way of peace. We're always going to resort to violence. And we also don't know inner peace. And I think that search, that quest for inner peace is related to that. So again, what non-Christians and Christians agree about is this world is very evil and there's something wrong with that. Like C.S. Lewis says, the apologist, he says that you wouldn't know what a crooked line is unless you've seen a straight line. And so if we can all agree that there's evil in this world and it feels wrong, there's an inner desire for that, that God has put in all of our hearts because we're made in His image and likeness. So we all have that desire to see this world put right. And again, we all find different ways of doing it. And that's one of the things for the uh, search for inner peace. But how can we find inner peace on our own when our entire thinking process is misguided and wrong and sinful? But then what we do is is redefine terms to make us feel better. That was uh, a couple weeks ago talking to a guy, a very spiritual kind of guy, who uh, you know, pulls different things from various religions and makes his own religion very, very spiritual. And he's very devout about it. Uh, like you know, one of those guys that does this when he, when he greets you. He's very devout about his spirituality. And he, we were talking about sin and repentance. And he said he tells people, sin, well, what sin really means is missing the mark. So have you ever made a mistake? It's not so bad. It's just missing the mark. 
And so we redefine sin. And yeah, that's one, actually is one meaning of the word sin. But I, it's, I think uh, pretty cruel to call something like child molesting missing the mark. Clearly there's something more to sin than missing, missing the mark. Then he said repentance. All repentance is is changing your mind. Well, yeah, kind of. But changing your mind about something doesn't really change anything because our mind doesn't work right. And so in order to find this inner peace, we redefine terms, make up a God who serves us so we can feel good about it. But we, it's, again, this natural desire we have to see things the way we feel they should be. Because we wouldn't know there's something wrong with this world unless we had a desire for it to be any different. And last quote from the Old Testament to show how we're all sinful is Paul quotes from Psalm 36, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the fear of God is not being afraid of Him. It's having the right respect for Him, holding Him in reverence and awe. It's kind of like if you would go to the Grand Canyon and there's a... I've never been there, but I read that there's a, like a glass ledge you can stand on and look straight down. And you're not afraid of the Grand Canyon, like it's going to hit you or something, but you have a fear of it, like, hey, I've got to watch my step. It's that kind of fear. It's a respectful fear. And what it says in the Bible is there's no fear of God before our eyes. And it's all because of our thoughts, words, and deeds. We don't put God in, our, in His proper place. And uh, subsequently, we don't put ourselves in our proper place. We make God lower than He is, and we elevate ourselves so that we think we're kind of equals. And that's what we do because we have no fear of God in our natural thinking process. So after all that, again, this whole thought process of Paul's goes all the way back to chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18, when he starts talking about how everybody is sinful and everyone is under condemnation, and if the just live by faith, there's no one who has any works that they can stand on. This goes all the way back to chapter 1. And so these last two verses are his sort of concluding argument to this whole thought, because he goes on to a new topic next week about the solution to this problem, and spoiler alert, Jesus. Hey, uh, so, if you're getting sick of hearing about sin, today was the last one. And next week we get to talk about uh, justification, being declared legally in good standing before God. But here's this final argument, putting us all under condemnation, that we're all guilty. In verses 19 and 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So all are guilty. That's his big conclusion after these couple chapters. And what he says here, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And this hits me kind of hard. He's saying, after you read this, you should just shut your mouth. You're done. You have no argument. We've all been convicted and condemned, and we have no leg to stand on as far as works. We cannot say we're good people. We cannot say we'll be justified before God by our good deeds. Hey, all our mouths should be stopped, and we should stop trying to justify ourselves and stop trying to be righteous with religion, stop trying to be righteous with religious causes, and stop trying to be a good person, stop trying to be spiritual, Stop trying to even ignore the problem. Just stop. Admit who you are and admit who God is and that we fall far short. 
And our mouth is filled with sin anyway, so there's no use in arguing. And that's what he's saying here. And it reminds me of when Paul says elsewhere that all mouths will be stopped, or every mouth will confess that Jesus is God. Every mouth will confess and every knee will bow. He's saying here, every mouth should be stopped at this point. We have no argument. And I thought about, recently, I teach in a school, and a couple weeks ago, some kids got in trouble for doing some teenage boy stuff, but they recorded it on Snapchat, and then, and then it got out. Okay, so they were guilty. There is video evidence of what they did. And what do you think they did when that got out? They argued. And that's what we do. I mean, we, reading the Bible, should be convicted that we are guilty and there's no argument. But yet we still argue. I think God wants me to be happy. I don't think God is like that. That God wouldn't send people to hell. I'm a pretty good person. And we argue. And he's saying right here, you need to shut your mouth and stop and have that fear of God and realize who you are. You know, all the world is guilty. And then he concludes in verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And justified, we'll get into next week, it's a legal term, meaning in good standing. So by the law, no, the deeds of the law, so by doing good things, by being an outwardly good person, no flesh will be declared in good standing in God's sight. Because the purpose of the law, the purpose of God saying, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do, is not for you to justify yourself. He says right here, the point of that is to have knowledge of sin. So when we read God's commands, yeah, we should you know, pray to the Holy Spirit to help us do those things. But the point of God saying, do this, don't do that, is not so we can do it and become righteous. The point is so we can see we can't do it and declare ourselves unrighteous and that we need a Savior, someone who could do it on our behalf, which is where Jesus comes in. And this, this is what makes Christianity very offensive because it says elsewhere in the Bible that if you could declare yourself righteous by the things you do, then the offense of the cross would be no more. And that's what people, I think, are offended about with Christianity is because there's one way, one truth, and it's uh, Jesus, and He is the only way. And if we could say as Christians, if we could say, well, you can do your best and try to fit the law and be saved, but if you fail at that, then there's Jesus as a backup, then I think a lot more people will be like, hey, you know, that's, that's all right, because people want to try. They don't want to accept a gift. But we can't say that. We can't say Jesus is option B, because God doesn't say that. It says if there was a way we could be justified without God himself coming to the earth to die for us, then God wouldn't have come to die for us. That's the only way. And so by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There's no plan B. And additionally, Christianity is offensive because of stuff like tonight. Because it says we're not good people on the inside. We're evil people. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. But the good news is God loves us enough, even though, even though we're unprofitable, that he sent his own son to pay the price for the things that we've done. So just to, to close tonight, I got a new phone but a couple months ago, an iPhone 6. And before I got my new phone, I got one because my old phone was getting uh, very bad, the battery life. It would do weird things. Like I'd be on it and it'd be like 72% battery. And then one second later it dropped to like 59%. 
I say, what? And uh, I would go to work with it, and I would be scared to use it because I might die at any time. It was just getting really weird. So if you've had battery problems on your phone, you know that there's tricks you can do to try to extend your battery life, like lower the brightness all the way, or uh, close all your apps running in the background, or uh, not use it is one thing. But no matter what tricks you do to try to save your, the battery life on your phone, your phone is going to die unless it gets plugged in. There's no tricks you can do forever to keep your phone alive forever. Even with my new phone, it's going to die unless I plug it in every once in a while. And that, that is a picture of us. Hey, we have tricks that we do to try to make God happy with us, tricks that we do to try to please God, tricks that we do to try to look self-righteous, but those are just tricks. We're going to die, and our mouths need to be stopped. And it's not just about repenting. It's not just about returning away from sin, because even Paul, before he knew Jesus, repented from sin. It's also about giving up. It's surrender. It's stopping your mouth, repenting from sin and saying, I'm out of tricks, and I need to be plugged in. And I need to be plugged in and reconnected with God, the creator of the universe, because there's that desire we have internally why we feel like we need inner peace, why this world is not right, because we feel like we need to be reconnected with God. And that's, again, that's us. Just like a phone needs to be plugged in because it's eventually going to die, we need to be plugged in to the power source, the source of life, God. And the only one who can do that is Jesus. We can't plug our own phone. If if you're a phone, you can't plug yourself in. You need someone else to do it, just like us. So there's nothing you can do about this, about all this Several chapters of sin. There's nothing you can do about it. But there is something God can do about it. And Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And if you disagree with him, then stop sinning. And you can't. I can't. No one can. Because we're enslaved to it. It's our master. And we do the things we don't want to do. Because really we do want to do them. And the Bible is not a book of somewhat related stories and anecdotes and you know little things here and there. The Bible is one book written over thousands of years by dozens of authors that tells one story. And that story is God's plan of redemption to save humanity from their sins. Because we can't do it ourselves. From the first chapter of Genesis to the end of Revelation, that's what the entire Bible is about. And it's how God saves people from something they cannot save themselves from. And from beginning to end, it tells that story. First, the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. And then the New Testament, once the Messiah has come, the Savior, the one who is going to pay for our sins, then it looks back on Him. So the whole Bible is God's plan of redemption. And we're slaves to sin. And redemption, what that word means, it's a, it's a term that you would use. It, the New Testament was written in Greek. And in Greek, that term is connected to slave trading. And it means when you purchase someone out of slavery. And when we read that word redemption in the Bible, that's what it means, that God has paid the price to purchase us from the slavery of our sin because we can't do it ourselves because what we are is sinful in thought, sinful in word, and sinful in deed. So there's only one response to this fact that we're sinful that doesn't make little of what we've done And it doesn't make too much of who we are. And that's Jesus. Because if any other answer to this makes our problems less than they really are, and it makes us better than we really are. So Jesus is the only answer that puts everything in its right place. And so Jesus, because he purchased us from the slavery of sin, 
It says in 2 Corinthians that on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon Him as our sacrifice. And He gave us His righteousness in return so that we could be seen as without sin, even though we remain sinful and even though we continue to sin. Jesus has paid the price for our sins because it's a price that we cannot pay. And so if you already know Jesus, if you've already surrendered your life to Him, hey, look at who you are. I mean, this, all this, we don't like hearing about sin, but we should reflect on ourselves, about who we are. And we need to know we cannot just do better. We cannot just make God love us more. We cannot just stop sinning. Hey, who we are is against that. And you're loved because Jesus died for you. And He chose you to be one of His people. Now when we, when we read about this, what the reflection should be is not, I need to try harder, but I need to look more to Jesus. I need to depend on His grace more. I need to pray to be more obedient to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And not try harder, but worship better. And worship Jesus. And ask for the Holy Spirit's help to live as much like Jesus as we can. So, to conclude this whole thing on sin that's gone for like five weeks, I think I would, I would say that we are more evil than we ever feared, but God is more loving than we ever imagined. And let's pray. Father, I come to you tonight just sorry for the sins that I've committed, my thoughts and my words and my deeds, but thankful that you've paid the price that I could never pay and that you've paid the price for the whole world, anyone who would accept the sacrifice of your son. And I just thank you personally that I, I just love studying your word and seeing how this all goes together and learning about your whole plan of redemption and how you love us even as wicked and evil as we are. Uh, so God, I, I pray that we would seek obedience from the Holy Spirit to live more like Jesus did and not just to try harder, but to worship better. And if there's anyone who doesn't know you, God, I pray you'd send the Spirit in their hearts right now to convict them as they should be, to have, make them feel like they need a Savior and to turn to you tonight, Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.